to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, greetings, Glenn. I uh, hope Thanksgiving went well for you. And heck, we're almost to Christmas now. Yeah, I I guess you're right. The last time we were recorded, was it around Thanksgiving? I think it was right before that. Wow, okay. Uh, no no sense of time. <laughs> it's Yes, it's all... It's all vague in the void, and what was the meme that we saw the other day? Uh, the if I say that I said something yesterday, that could mean I said it five minutes ago, five days ago, five weeks ago, five months ago. I don't remember anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 kind of that way, especially now back into um, lockdown, work from home mode. But I, I hope for you as well. Thanksgiving went well. Um, you know, big big meal for the family for me. It, it was. It's funny, since it was just, you know, the, the six of us, your wife and the kids and me, we just kind of took suggestions of what would you like for Thanksgiving and you, and then we just massive pile of food with leftovers for almost a week, which meant that when someone suggested creme brulee, well, that got added on in. And when I said, well, are we going to then not make one of the other pies? No, no, no. We still have to have the pumpkin pie and the apple pie, but also now creme brulee for dessert. Oh, I see. So you had the standards... Plus the add-ons. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. And I think the the pies didn't have a whole lot of action that first day. They, they, they mainly moved into leftover territory, but we still had them. That was the important thing. Um, so before we get too much further in, uh, a big thank you to a couple new Patreons or patrons uh, through patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Uh, thank you to Amanda and to Lori for joining our crew. Uh, a big thanks to you guys and and definitely appreciate your your support yeah thank you thank you very much all right we got a whole list of of before the main topic things so let's, let's start knocking these out so the next one is the anagram for this episode uh-huh. uh, here we go ready ready glenn yeah ready initial chunks initial uh, i-n-i-t-i-a-l chunks c-h-u-n-k-s okay yeah all right okay now um I uh, got a message here, uh, so a little brief correction corner uh, of uh, uh, Glenn. You remembered um, a couple episodes ago, I think I mentioned that uh, one of the longest words in the English language, without a letter repeating in the word, was uh, dermatoglyphics. Right. Uh, and uh, I, I just looked it up here. There's the other one with the same number of letters is unco- uncopyrightable. But I got a message in from uh, JP, eagle-eyed listener, I, I guess, uh, with the, a suggestion that even surpassing both of those would be subdermatoglyphic. Ooh, a good point. So um, adding on just a couple more letters there up to, I think it's 17. It definitely is a mouthful, though. Uh, all right, next order of business. Uh, back earlier in the year, we talked about uh, the Zodiac case. And there was definitely some big news on the Zodiac uh, front uh, in the past couple of weeks. Yeah. The, the cipher, right? The, the, the 340, I think it was. Um, yeah. Which they call it because there are 340 characters in the message, was deciphered by an international team of three people, I think from the U.S., like Belgium, Belgium and Australia. Australia, yeah. I want to say. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, using this like decoding algorithm and then 
little bit about it. They they tried not just going through and decoding it like the the original message that was decoded back in the '60s, but uh, instead doing like taking a letter, the first letter in the top left corner, but instead of going just to the next one, going over two, down one, over two, down one in the stepwise manner uh, until to kind of rearrange everything. They were trying all sorts of different patterns through it, and that one happened to have a few words pop up as possible you know, decoded words. And through some additional work, because Zodiac had also screwed up his own pattern, um, they were able to, uh, to right. work and it I, out. We even mentioned this on the episode, that when you're dealing with crazy and or maybe someone who's not – Yep. Maybe not so bright, you know, because he's not this Hannibal Lecter genius, you know, in in serial killer kind of James Bond villain. He's a crazy person who, you know, we figured and even thought, well, what if he's misspelled something and that's throwing everything off? What if he made some sort of mistake? So it would it would. And not deliberately, of course, because that sounds really genius if it was a deliberate mistake to throw everyone off. But no, very unlikely. It's just a simple spelling error. And there were examples of his misspellings, I think, even in the one that was resolved. Yeah, I think think the misspellings were deliberate, right? I think that's a a tactic used by, you know, these these cipher makers to, to make it more difficult. Um, if there's, you know, misspellings throughout, but I think this, like the pattern that he had set up as to like, which you're going like down into the right, down to the right. I think at one point he kind of got off and was going over only one instead of over two. I'd have to look back at everything. He was off on a column on, on a count. I I think that, that was the non-deliberate one. Which then it was a big part of why it's gone unsolved or it went unsolved for 50 years, you know, kind of like the first one. Um, and this is kind of why I think everyone was so quick to be like, yep, this is actually the solution. And the FBI, you know, uh, came out and agreed with it, uh, saying that it is the solution. Is it's the sa- it's the same kind of rambling message you got the first time uh, about right. you know killing and death and you know, not giving his actual identity. Uh, just kind of the, more of the same kind of ramblings we've seen before, right? Yes, and it fit. It just fit with everything. It fit with this whole style and uh, yeah. other events that were going on around the time. Talking about the gas chamber, the period you know, calling into the TV show, those sorts of things. Yeah, I woke up early. I was it about a week ago or so now, uh, and saw it on you know like a, just a little news story on it. And was just like, holy shit, <laughs> and sent, sent text messages out to you and a couple other people saying, hey, look at this. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was definitely exciting news, especially since we just covered it a few months ago. Right, right, for sure. Yeah, it was pretty cool to see. And I, I, I after watching, it just immediately felt like, yeah, that's it. It's, that's it. They got it. And hats off to them. Oh, absolutely. This is like just fantastic work. And uh, there's a lot more detail. There's a YouTube video that the guys that you know, did this work put out. And I uh, highly recommend watching through it. It's about, I don't know, 12, 15 minutes uh, explaining what they were doing, how they found it, and how they had to work through uh, some of the, the, um, the issues like this kind of sequence uh, issues uh, to arrive at that final solution. 
Uh, all right, so Glenn, you, you took a trip here recently. I did. I went to Puerto Rico, and I'd never been to Puerto Rico before. But I was asked to go and come down for a Daubert hearing. They were having a Daubert hearing in uh, San Juan in a federal case. And the prosecutors basically contacted me on Friday, I think it was, and said, we have a hearing on Monday. Will you come down? <laughs> and and me being so desperate for travel and hearing, wait, is this near the ocean? All right, I'll be there. No problem. Uh, I, I said, yeah, sure. I mean, and for me, Daubert hearings, as we've said in other episodes and talked about, I enjoy doing them. I have all the information at my ready. I've done these a number of times. I'm very comfortable doing them. I, I find them straightforward because defending the science this day and age is easy. The The tricky part with a Daubert hearing is the as-applied task. Did the local agency whose case it is, right. do they follow standards? Do they document? Do they have best practices? Are they accredited? Are they certified? That's where these – kinds of tests tend to fall by the wayside or evidence gets excluded. So, you know, I don't I don't know how the local agency would feel about me talking about. It, so, I'll simply say that they're a federal agency and they uh, you know, they were being put on the spot to also they were being notified on like a Thursday or a Friday that they would have to testify in a Daubert hearing and so their I first wonder. reaction was wow. yeah, why don't you get Glenn to come down and do it? <laughs> and uh so it, ended up working. Um, but to be fair, right when we were getting ready to go, everything got canceled and then moved a few weeks till after Thanksgiving. So early December, I ended up going going down. So we actually had a little bit more time to prepare. Okay. And and I went down there and it, it just the tra- just traveling was just so nice. It was just so nice to get away, to be back <laughs> on a plane. To, to just be able to like go and relax at a hotel and uh, and I had a choice too I could stay downtown San Juan near the courthouse or on the beach. So you I chose downtown, beach. of course. Oh, oh, <laughs> right, right, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I well, and I had to pay a little bit more, but sure. I mean, it was you know something like fifteen twenty bucks a day to stay on the beach, and so I did that. And it was just nice to be able to get into the ocean. Although they had some interesting rules too for for COVID, they shut the beach down after eight p.m. So you had and you had to have a reservation to go down there. So they sort of limited how many people came down to the beach. Right. You had to had to wear a mask at all times throughout the hotel and until you got to the beach. Then you could take it off and you had your little designated area or if you went into the ocean. So they, they did have some controls, which, I mean, I get it. I mean, I wanted to be able to walk at, on the beach a little bit at night because I was working most of the time during the day, of course, from, you know, 8 in the morning sure. till 6 at night. So by the time I got back to the hotel, <laughs> there really wasn't much beach action to go on. But, well, I, I was able to stick around a little bit later after and, and enjoy that a little bit. But... I worked with the attorneys all all the one day and went through everything, kind of went through my presentation. I don't have a presentation per se, Eric. I Every case is a little different, so I always – I have like a shell and then I sort of 
after talking to the attorney, after looking at the defense motion, I can kind of figure out where things are going. And then when I read this defense motion, much of it looked very familiar. It kind of looked like the attorney wanted to use mm, PCAST as a way of being able to exclude evidence or at a minimum limit the examiner yep. uh, or in some way at least get jurors to understand that this isn't you know, an exact science. That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it, Eric? <laughs> Well, I mean, yes, but it's... coming from Puerto Rico. Ah, yes. Okay, that's right. So, <laughs> see where I'm going with this. Okay, so yeah, for our listeners, I don't know a year ago, a oh, year and like a half, three years ago, two, I think. Oh, okay, who knows? Okay, several years ago, we had an episode where we reviewed an article from a defense attorney in Puerto Rico. And we reviewed this article and it was how to use the PCAST report to – I don't remember the title, but basically exclude your evidence or at least get a, get a limitation from the judge. And that's exactly what this defense motion read like. It had all those elements to it. So I went, well, all right, we need to be pretty prepared for this. So we're very prepared to discuss the Miami-Dade study, the you know black box study, error rate numbers. This wasn't just uh, tick the boxes. We thought we'd have to go in you know, in a little depth, even though the attorney of record was not the author of that article whose name was Eric Voss, V-O-S. That was not the attorney that was named on it. But I figured and asked the prosecutors, is this Eric Voss's office? Is this one of his people? Sure. Will he be there? Is he kind of behind this a little bit? And their answer was no. They're from different offices, uh, so they're not in the same office, but he might have had something to do with this. And I was like, look, this re- reads just like this article, and I gave the prosecutors that article. They hadn't read it. They weren't aware of it, <laughs> which, again, you know, surprise, but okay. So they read the article, and I said, look, this may be what we're dealing with here. And they had never had a Daubert hearing before for – or maybe ever, come to think of it. Maybe they had never had one because they were a little unfamiliar with the process, so I kind of walked them through. Or if they had had Daubert hearings, it definitely wasn't with forensic evidence and certainly not fingerprints. Right, right. So kind of walked them through this, and one of the questions that they had even was who goes first in a Daubert hearing because you know their feeling was, well, we're not raising this issue. If defense is raising this issue, well, then – they should go first, right? Interesting. Said, well, that's not how it works. I, I, that's, that wasn't my experience uh, with the the one well, Daubert ish really seven hundred two hearing I was in. But is it usually yeah. the same the same prosecutor first and the ones you've been involved with? It, it's always the prosecutor first, okay? Uh, be, because it's their burden, right? Because sure. they have to demonstrate that this evidence is reliable. Defense is raising a reliability issue, so it's the burden on the government to demonstrate reliability. Or at least in the you know, I can honestly say I've read at least a hundred different Daubert opinions, probably more. If I haven't read them, I'm familiar with at least the case or what happened. I mean, there've just been hundreds, right, over the last twenty years, and in every one, you know, that's that's how it goes. So we were we were getting very prepared for me to get on the stand because I was going to do the Daubert portion of it, and then the the federal examiner was going to do their portion of it and run through their stuff and then you know we'd rest and then defense board is going to put on their expert they had their own expert so when it came time to the hearing the next day 
Um, the COVID protocols were pretty strict and kind of interesting there. Uh, they limited the number of people in the courtroom. They had right. to be on this list. Uh, so uh, we had thought that maybe if Eric Voss wasn't involved in the prepping of this attorney, he might show up to witness or watch it. But as soon as we got to the courtroom, we realized that that's not going to happen because, again, it was a really restricted on who could go into the courtroom right. in those conditions. Absolutely. And, and the, Whoever is just absolutely necessary. Exactly. And they had to wear masks even uh, throughout the entire hearing uh, when they were speaking uh, at the podium. They had like these little covers for the microphones that they had to take with them. And they had uh, pretty serious protocols. They were cleaning everything after each person would go up there and speak at the mic. So it was interesting to see how they were dealing with that in, in a way that I thought was you know, responsible for, for the circumstances. So then when we go to start the – now this is in Puerto Rico and obviously the, <laughs> the, you know, the national language, the mother tongue is, in, is Spanish. And I found that pretty much everyone that I spoke to related to the case – was bilingual and spoke English and Spanish fluently, easily on both sides. Sure. But I noticed that outside the hotel and when dealing with the average person, English was a little broken. Spanish was clearly the predominant language. And in the courtroom, everything was done um, in whatever native tongue you speak, but it would be then translated to the other. So uh, the um, you know the judge and everyone was predominantly speaking Spanish. But it was being translated to English, and they had a couple of interpreters there. Like, 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 uh, like out loud for the court, or like with the little earpiece kind of translation. Oh no, out, out loud. Oh, for everybody. Right. Yeah. So, and, which was helpful because I couldn't understand Spanish well enough to follow the, you know, the defense witness and some of the attorneys and some of the issues. So it was really helpful. They would speak, pause. There'd be interpretation. They'd speak, pause, interpretation. Sure. So it was, it was helpful. All right, so then we go to the start, and the judge kind of gets up there and gets everything going, and she says, okay, well, uh, defense, since you're bringing this motion forward, uh, you're going to go first. Huh. And the, you know, the prosecutors looked at me, and they're like, what the hell? <laughs> and I looked at them and went, um, I don't think that's right. <laughs> and, but who am I? You know, I'm not a lawyer. Who right. am I going to correct the judge? But I'm sitting there thinking procedurally, I don't think this is right. So I'm hoping, Lisa, Lisa Steele, if you're listening, uh, I, I'm curious to get a little legal in, input here because it was always my understanding that it's the government's burden to demonstrate reliability, not the other side's burden to prove that it's unreliable. That's, that's my understanding of, of a Daubert hearing, especially in a federal formal you know hearing like this well or or at least you know whoever's bringing the evidence mm -hmm. would be the one that, that has to demonstrate its reliability yes um, yeah that, where theoretically defense could be bringing in evidence of their own in in where it would be the other way around but it'd be they would go first because they were the ones bringing in the evidence yes the proponent of the evidence right. it's their burden to demonstrate reliability and that it meets 702 that's that's my understanding. So I was very surprised by this, but went, mm, okay. But I was also a little, little irritated because 
I've never got to go first in a Daubert hearing. I've done a dozen of these things, and I always end up having to wait. And I was so excited to be able to finally go on first. And (laughs) there's nobody in front of me because that will always happen in these other hearings. They'll put on someone else. They'll put on, well, we just have this other thing we've got to do first. We've got this other minor issue we need to address. I'll be there at 8 in the morning, and I won't get on until afternoon. Uh, It it would happen time and time again. I was finally – you know, I've been studying for the task. I'm all ready to go, and now it's – now I'm waiting again. Uh. So I was a little little irritated, but you know. All right, so then they – so the defense expert gets up there. And he starts going through his qualifications, and he's been in the field of fingerprints for over 40 years in San Juan. And I think he worked for like a local crime lab there for about 20, and then he was associated with like a university for maybe another 20 years or so. So, you know, he's got 20 years of crime lab work, and I I didn't recognize the name, um, didn't really know much about him at all, hadn't seen any publications, I just – I didn't know who this person was. But he starts speaking, and as he's talking about his his credentials, I've got warning bells just going off in the back of my head going, hmm, hold on, that that does not sound right. And at some point when he was asked during his voir dire – how many times have you testified and been qualified as an expert, expert you know, in fingerprints in the courtroom? His answer was thousands. Thousands. Wait. And, <laughs> <laughs> thousands. Okay. Right? right? Okay. So, so like my first re- – so every- I turned to the attorney and said, wait, thousands? Thousands. Thousands, plural. And then the judge caught this and looked at him and went, whoa, hold on, sir. Did you say thousands? And then she repeats it in Spanish. And it, you know, it's clear she's asking him thousands, and he said, yes, thousands. And she's looking at him like BS. I mean you could see it on her face. No way. No way. And I've gone through the numbers, Eric. It would have to be really, literally something like you have to testify every week two weeks off a year for 20 years you have to would be you'd have to testify two to three times a week basically f- for 50 weeks out of the year for 20 years uh, i mean so my, my first thought was was thinking back to spanish classes and and it being you know not uncommon that people mix up mil and million yes, um, in yes. spanish which is thousand and million but the, the, okay, yes. we're not, we're not. That's not the order of magnitude that we're dealing with here. So I, I right. okay, and and that's what the, that's why the judge specifically like repeated it to make sure, not just a thousand, which still would be pretty incredible, but thousands, right? Yes. Uh, he and he he doubled down on it. It wasn't like well, yeah, no. He he was adamant it was thousands, and I just. And the attorney next to me, the prosecutor, was just – she was she was, kind of, she was pretty funny. She, she was she was saying, no way, no way, no way. That, but she was saying that with a little more expletive. <laughs> I, I, can, I can fill in the blank there. OK, I got gotcha. you. Yes, yes, you can. All right. So that was the first one. And then the second one was he was talking about certifications and he, he was being asked by the defense uh, if he's certified. And he said, yes, I'm certified. And then I immediately went, hold on. 
That's it's not on a CV. Why would you not put that there? And he had been certified at one point by the IAI. There was a five year block where he was certified, okay. but he was no longer certified. So when he kept saying he was certified, I was not. I don't. I don't think so. And so. I'm pointing this out to the attorneys. We're looking at the CV. That's not making sense. And then he said he, that he's certified by the FBI. And then I went, no, okay, hold on. That's no, not that's right. definitely not right. It's a thing if you're if you work for the FBI. That's what they call competency. Well, sure, right. But they don't certify anybody externally. Right. And then, I mean, even then, I was like, well, did he work for the FBI at some point? Is he? Is there a confusion here? And then he said he was certified by DEA. And I went, no, no, okay. No, because they don't offer a certification that's not possible. So I'm kind of <laughs> making lots of notes and being frantic. And again, I don't know if the judge was like either hearing. Like I kind of think maybe her mic was hot or something because she seemed to pick up on this. She was so sharp. She picked up on every little thing, everything that made me go, Mm-mm, uh, that doesn't sound right. The judge was right there because she stopped him and said, hold on. What do you mean by certified by the DEA and the FBI? And he said, well, I attended these courses, and at the end, I was certified. And she's like, you have a certification from the FBI, like a license or some sort of thing that you have to keep up? Well, I I got a certificate. I was certified. And she's like, no, that's not certification. You got a certificate, a training certificate. Right. So the judge is correcting him. And uh, Well, good on her for – for knowing, yeah. right? No, it, exactly. I was so impressed with her knowledge of it. But you could tell at this point she had already heard enough things that made her go, all right, this is this is BS. I mean she she called out every little thing that stood out. There were a couple of other little minor things that she picked up on too that asked all these questions. So he hadn't even started his testimony and there were some serious problems with Wadir. So then when we get to the actual testimony part, his biggest issue – it turned out that – in fact, at some point, we we kind of – me and the prosecutors, because I was sitting at the table there, one of the prosecutors was like, do I ask him the question? I'm like, yeah, why don't – I think we should. I think we should. Ultimately, do we ask him if you think ACEV is reliable because he's used it, right, for 40 yeah. years? He even testified to ACEV, ask him if it's reliable or not. And of course, you know, she did and, and, and he said it was reliable. So that right there was okay. So we're using defense's witness to to talk about the reliability of ASB, and he said, "Yeah, it's it's very reliable process." Well, so, so what was his yeah? What was his whole problem? Right. Right. So let, let me back up for a second before you get into like his issue. The the case here is it a? I'm assuming it's a fingerprint comparison with the with an identification as the conclusion. Uh, multiple multiple identifications. identifications. Okay. Okay, so this is like, this isn't like who you bring in for that kind of like this is who you bring in if you're trying to get in like a support for same source conclusion. You bring in the old the old timer that's never done that before, right? Yes, right. But for an ID, like I'm just confused as to where this is going, right? No, well, so were we. So, I mean, ultimately his issue was – and this we knew, I knew from the, the previous day. He had been asked to look at the evidence in the case, and he was given all the photographs, right? And then at some point he says, well, I don't know what's going on here. I need to see the original evidence. So they met with him to see the original evidence. He meets, looks at the original evidence, and then 
you know, they've set out like all the uh, the items that had been processed that had the latents on, and there were lots of items. Like this is a huge federal case, so I mean, it wasn't all these sub items. This wasn't a small amount of evidence. There was sure. a large number of photographs, right? And there are dozens and dozens and dozens of latent prints to multiple people in this case. And basically, the expert, you know, the defense's expert, looks at it and goes, "Well, I don't know where any of this came from, so I, I, I can't do a comparison here." And he just kind of walked out of the room. So he never really looked at anything. And his whole argument was they didn't do overall photos or mid-range photos. They had close-up photos that they had provided him, and this was his opportunity to try to look at the close-up photos to figure out, okay, well, where are these on the actual item of evidence? And he wouldn't do that. He said, if, if you can't, basically, if you can't give me the mid-range photos and the overalls, we're done here. I, I, I can't do an exam without them. So, of course, one of my first questions out of the gate telling the attorneys was, you got to ask me if I review private cases all the time for defense, yes. Do you always get mid-range and overall photos? No, and probably at least half the cases I don't get those. Sure. Can you still render conclusions about source? Absolutely. If you're going to ask me questions about where the print came from or if it's on the exterior or interior or is under a layer of tape, I won't be able to answer any of those questions, but I can certainly answer questions about source. But he was saying he couldn't without those photographs. Okay. And that was his whole argument, and <laughs> saying that okay. they used an unreliable process. So it wasn't Ace V was unreliable. It was their method of collection and preservation, which the judge stopped them and asked very clearly, you're not saying Ace V is unreliable. You're saying their collection and preservation method is – and then she even said, you're not saying it's unreliable. You're saying that's not best practices. And at this point, the judge just kind of stopped the hearing after he was done and said, you know, I'm going to rule on this. It's coming in. We don't need to do anything else. That's it. If you're not, if not going to show that ASB is unreliable, then we're done here. So I never got to testify. <laughs> <laughs> I was a little irritated because I wanted to testify, <laughs> but I never got to. <laughs> Oh, it was the wow. most bizarre Daubert hearing I'd ever been involved in. It was it was so very bizarre. Now, the weird thing is that was not the defense's motion, right? I mean, the defense's motion was all about PCAS and error rates. And right. All these That's other why things. I'm like, like this, like this, you know, this is just more like just stereotypes, right? The, the guys that have been around for a long time just in our industry have a lower chance to have like a science background than newer people just because of this shift that happened in like the 90s early 2000s from cops yeah. doing this work to forensic scientists doing this work yeah so um and this isn't just specific to puerto rico this is you know across the country across the continent so when like the setup is this like all this pcast kind of stuff and then you describe the witness i was like this this isn't this isn't yeah. connected like this I and mean, maybe this guy like you know really knows this you know stuff about all this new research that's out there it, it just no if you're just looking no. at just like stereotypes in the industry that's just that's just not who you get to testify on this specific matter right. uh and then they didn't yeah, even the, bring it up like that's so the, yes it it was very, very strange. It's kind of like reading a movie synopsis and watching the movie and go, "That's did, did I watch the wrong movie? That was <laughs> like, not, not at all what that TiVo description was <laughs> for, for that show. Yeah, it, it was very, very strange. Now, 
I, I don't even know because defense didn't object to going out of order. So I don't know if defense knew that this was kind of out of order. Or maybe Glenn's wrong about that, but that's why I want to hear from a legal expert. Sure. We can, yeah, want to, I'd like someone to tell me if I'm wrong, but because they didn't object, I don't. I, I was thinking, well, maybe they were going to ask me those questions and they were going to challenge me on that. But because we went out of this order, they didn't. But after hearing the defense's like line of questioning and the kinds of questions and what he was a really nice guy, very polite, and he came up and like was very polite to everyone after the hearing. But he just didn't really. He did not seem to understand what these issues were, and I don't think he had anything to do with writing this PCAST thing, which I suspect came from the other attorney sure. who did under, understand those sorts of issues. So yeah, it was it was strange because he, he asked two questions of his witness. One was about the NAS report and one was Mayfield, and even then he – didn't seem to know like how to follow up. He just read like a quote from the NAS report about HV being vague, but now he's using his witness to talk about the vagaries of HV after his witness. Now that's not true because then prosecution gets up and says, asks him that specific question. It's reliable, right? And he right. agreed. So yeah, I, it was a very very bizarre situation, and the only thing, well, not the only, but the the best part of it was I just kind of turned to the attorney, prosecutor, and said, "Looks like I'm going to the beach early today." <laughs> <laughs> so I I got my beach time. There you go. That's huh. In the courtroom, it's not all Perry Mason moments, right? There's uh, there's there's lots of quirky moments. Yes, this was definitely quirky. Like so the, anyway. Uh, just in, in quirkiness reminds me of the case I wasn't testifying, but just observing in the in the in the crowd back with my old agency, uh, where they actually the defense it was a public defender defending the guy, and they actually got Simon Cole to fly in from uh from LA. You know, right before Simon gets on, they they have to wrap up this one other little issue which involved the defendant wanting to represent himself and claim mm. to be a sovereign citizen. And then he did and said, I don't want this guy to testify for me. And Simon went home. It's <laughs> 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 just like, it's one of the, also one of those things of, you know, how lucky are you to be represented by a public defender and they go yes. all the way to get this kind of expert in. And then yes. you just, you know, piss it all away. But. You know, Eric, it's funny you should say that just a little side tangent because now I, you know, I'm dealing with so many public defenders and so many you know, even sometimes private attorneys. Sure. And I have, I have to say it really makes me wonder a little bit about some of these private attorneys because so many of them, you know, are they're hired through the court you know they've got their own practice they either have to do x number of, of cases or they have you know like contracts with the court and they you could kind of tell that they don't really want to because they're probably not paid at the same rate that they would normally be paid their hourly rate and i i, I have seen so many better public defenders uh fight and on these forensic issues and so many of them represent their clients so well compared to some of the really high-paid private attorneys uh, and and you're you the comment you made about you know a good public defender yeah yeah i mean when, when you've got a good public defender i mean what a what a great thing to have what a you know what a great system it can be compared to having to pay just exorbitant fees out of pocket for someone who really 
doesn't understand some of these issues uh, in the courtroom like the public defenders do. And I'm sure it's a mix of 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 all the above. We've talked to and talked about really great uh, private uh, defense attorneys. Sure. And I'm sure that plenty of uh, defendants have had bad luck in getting a less than great public defender. So sure, sure, sure. Uh, but <laughs> that's of, of all the different twists and turns that I was imagining this story to go. Because you've been purposefully not telling me about what the story is for a couple <laughs> weeks now. Um, the this is not where I thought this would go. So me neither. I'm just thankful that I got a chance to travel, meet some great people, enjoy some amazing food. I mean, the food was obviously incredible. And then just spend time in the ocean. I I had not been to the ocean in a year and a half, and I was just dying for some ocean time. All right. Are we ready to get into the uh, the article here for today? I think so. And I did get your anagram, so I'm, I'm ready for that. Okay. It's a good one. <laughs> I, I, I was just trying out some different uh, possibilities, and that one struck me as somewhat funny. So we'll, we'll cover that at the end of the show. Yeah, I wasn't. Uh, I nearly, I, I nearly missed it. I would have missed it, but I got lucky. There you go. Well, that's sometimes that's what it takes. The article this week is "Why Do Fingerprint Examiners Differ in Their Conclusions?" by Austin Hicklin, Bradford Ullery, Madeline Odomore, and Joanne Biscaglia. And uh, this is shortly to be released in uh, Forensic Science International. Yes, we have a preprint. Uh, you can go online and check out the preprint uh, if you have trouble accessing it. Just reach out to us, and we'll we'll help you out there. But so uh, this uh, this paper here is it's summarizing a lot of different data and covering a lot of different topics. There's a there's a lot crammed into this these uh, 16 pages here. The data sets or the the research that they're using here comes from really four sources. Uh, this most recent uh, eye tracking data set uh, that uh, these guys here from Noblis were involved with. Uh, the original black box set from, oh geez, is that 10 years ago now almost? Uh, yeah. <laughs> the uh, black box repeatability, kind of the, the shortly after that follow-up to black box, and then the white box data set. And the topics covered here uh, include, you know, how the differing conclusions can be explained by uh, the different images and elements of the images in terms of the examiners, different kinds of variations between examiners, how examiner thresholds of when they make certain decisions, um, how that can be as a result of different skill levels, different risk tolerance, different biases. Uh, inconsistency of within each examiner, within themselves, and looking at the same comparisons at different points in time. How a three-conclusion scale differs from greater than three, uh, and how that plays into uh, differences uh, in examiner opinions. Uh, and then talking even also about how the, all of this analysis might uh, play into how proficiency testing can be different. So... Lots of different things to cover here, and but again, based uh, on all these data sets that uh, this team from Noblis have been working on for you know ten plus years now. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it broke down into, like you said, all these different things, but it really comes down to two major topics. There's lots of differences between the conclusions and examiners in these studies. Is it because of the images or because of the examiners or a combination of both? 
And and I think they did a pretty good job of being able to kind of point to when it was more image-based versus when it was more examiner-based. And clearly there's going to be some overlap. But I, this is something that I, I think we've talked about multiple sure. times before. And and in fact, I what I found when I read this was pretty much everything in this paper we've talked about <laughs> in other episodes because we've reviewed all of these papers. Yeah. We've talked about them for years and we often you and I kind of look back and look at big picture, you know, how the how does this study relate to these other studies? You know, what's what's the relationship of these data? What's that telling us about this sort of examiner behavior? So for us, it, I think this was kind of reassuring because it showed with data things that we had been sort of identifying trends uh, that are either image-based or examiner-based, uh, you know, in, in previous studies. I actually found it uh, reassuring to, to, to our assessments uh, in the past. So the, the, uh, the first thing here, just working through the paper, uh, is the image effects, how the different images themselves can lead to more variability in examiner conclusions. One of the big things they're seeing here is if you run a LQ metric, which is a mm -hmm. latent quality metric, a, an automated software tool, uh, mainly a part of the ULW, uh, the FBI software, to do latent fingerprint comparisons or searches to NGI. If you ran that on all the latent prints that were used in some of these studies, like for example, the black box data set, the variability was at the lowest point when uh, in the latent prints that had the highest uh, quality score and the lowest quality score. And essentially, if it's higher quality, everyone agrees that it's a value for uh, comparison, a value for identification. Uh, and then when compared, agree on identification or exclusion as being the, the appropriate conclusion to reach. And then if it's on the low end, everyone basically agrees it's either not suitable for comparison at all, uh, or if it is compared, the an inconclusive uh, conclusion being reached. Right. Yeah. The it's the extremes where we and I know you've said this multiple times. I remember other episodes where you've said it. It's not. It's not the high end, and it's tempting to think at the low end that the you're right. The worst of the latent prints would have the 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 most variability in conclusions but that's actually not the case the worst of the latent prints have a consensus that we all tend to say it's no value right, we just don't want to deal print. with it <laughs> right right it's, it's garbage so you've got your your high end consensus your low end consensus it's those that are low but at the threshold and and it's it's the middle ground where you get this variation and yeah. I, I think it's important here and I'm not sure if they explicitly said it, but uh, I think it's important here to to point out that you know they basically broke uh, this data set into chunks, right? The 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 quarter of the of the latents with the highest quality, the quarter of the latents with the lowest quality, and then like the fifty percent in the middle, uh, right. where they saw the higher um, variability. Now that was in this black box study, right? Which is doesn't necessarily fully align with actual casework. Maybe also depends a lot on an agency. If an agency basically only deals with good latents to begin with, then that's going to really skew how you can apply this onto them uh, versus a latent an agency that deals a whole lot more uh, on the lower end with with more of the kind of the garbage level 
uh, prints. I was in reading through that was kind of one observation I had of of just remembering that this is always coming back to in this study with these samples. And we, again, we've said that before over the years. Yeah, uh, and that's the nice thing about using the LQ metric, though, is that you know it's bounded, you know, from basically zero to a hundred. And yeah, you're right. I mean, in casework, you may have fewer or more certain kinds of latents that you might get exposed to, but at least you've got these numbers where high numbers are on the one end and the low numbers are on you know on the other end, and they're they're going to fall in those same quartiles, is what I'm saying. Right, right. So, pre- pre- yeah, the uh, the high quartile, what they deem to be like the higher quality ones, were scores of in LQ metric above sixty six. Uh, right. And there may be agencies that that's that's all they deal with is only latents above up at that high level, which is again different than the black box data. Yes, yes. Uh, and then they go on to say, you know, additionally in the latent itself, beyond just the quality score measured by this LQ metric, the lowest rates of reproducibility generally had ambiguous ridge detail, discontinuous ridges. Uh, low specificity, like you know, not mm-hmm. very distinctive uh, features, no core or delta, possible superimposition of um, your know, overlay uh, of prints, um, and then low contrast, either being too light low contrast or all too dark low contrast. Uh, which it, again, you're going through. Yep, yep, yep. Like <laughs> that's that's exactly the situation where you would have more more disagreement with any one of those or especially a combination of, of uh, multiple. Right. All right. So then the examiner effects spent a whole section here looking at uh, how examiners uh, have disagreements, uh, have differences in their conclusions and what differences in examiners, you know, may lead to these differences. Uh, and a few new neat little graphs that, uh, you know, I'd never seen the data presented this way before, which I thought were, were interesting in, uh, graphing for different images, different you know comparison pairs, uh, the percentage th- of examiners that would, for that image, say a value or identification or exclusion, and then graphed against uh, the basically the different examiners' ability to make a call, right? Either a value or an ID or an exclusion versus no value or or inconclusive. It's really hard to describe here without you guys going to and looking at the the figures. So take a look at figure one and figure two. I just found them interesting as a new yeah. way to display this data. Yeah, I really struggle with these graphs at first. I end up spending a ton of time. And any listener, if you do put these graphs in front of you, here's sort of what how I looked at it. And it just went, oh, okay, I see what's happening here. What I did was I started at the top, so I'm looking at figure two right now, and they've got your mated pairs, which are these blue, you know, lots of blue dots, and then they have the non-mated pairs, which are lots of red dots. But what I did was I started at the very top line, and then at some point had read in the text that the rows are basically the decisions of one examiner. Yes. Right? So each, ex- each row is one examiner's set of conclusions. And so you can see at the very top of that first graph with the mated pairs, like that examiner is called just basically almost everything that was from the same source has called that an ID. 
and he's got one false ne- – or she, he or she has one false negative in there and maybe one inconclusive. Everything else was called an ID. And then as you start going down, you start to see a few more um, few more inconclusives, maybe a few more false negatives. And as you start to get to like the halfway point, you have tons of no values in the inconclusives. And as you go all the way to the very last line, the lowest line – like that's shocking to me. That examiner has called everything no value or inconclusive except for two trials, I think, maybe three, where he said an ID or she said an ID and one false negative. So you really get a sense of efficiency from an examiner that you know, these – and they didn't necessarily all have the same trials. So that, that's understood that these aren't exactly the same trials, but they had about the same number and where right. examiner number one at the top – has only called one inconclusive, and the examiner at the bottom has basically only called one or two IDs. I mean, it's it's I mean, it's a it's a huge range in performance. Well, and and it's not just like someone got all the easy ones and someone got all hard ones because you have those rows. Then uh, the columns represent all of the different comparisons, all the different pairs of latent exemplars that you got to compare. And they're ordered from, on the left, basically only one person called this an ID to, on the far right-hand side, everybody called it an ID. And those two examiners that you saw have, again, not the same dots, but dots spread across that entire range. Uh, So it really is a difference in performance of those two examiners. Yeah, I I would recommend that the listeners of this episode take a look at those graphs, and I know they seem really busy, but if that helps you break it down, you know, and then you know, look at the other one, which is the non-mated pairs. That one's pretty interesting too, because at the top, you've got a person who called all the non-mated pairs they're presented with, called every one of them an exclusion, and got them all right, and then you look at the bottom. (laughs) And that's the scary one. And that one at the bottom is the one where the two false positives were were called because th- this is black box data. So in that box, Eric, there should be six blue false positive dots. And I see six, right? And it's the examiner on the last row at the bottom that has two in his row because there was one examiner in black box that called two erroneous identifications but look at his data or her data his or her data and you'll see that he did, he or she did not call a single correct exclusion, exclusion. E- everything was inconclusive and then two false positives in there that is very interesting uh, yeah i mean that tells you a lot about okay this and this is the first time i've ever seen the data for the examiners in black box this tells me a lot about the performance and i guess it's comment I'm going to make here in a moment, but I find that in the the mated image pairs, it's really around the – I'm going to say the 40 percent mark. So there's about 60 percent of the participants in the black box study that I go are either good, good – we'll, we'll say efficient examiners or good performing examiners, and then there's about – 20% that are pretty pretty marginal might have some issues and then there's 20% that are uh, – it, it's shocking if these are caseworking examiners. Right, because like they're basically not calling IDs. 
or exclusions or anything. Or exclusions or anything. And the tough part is, is, and what we can't see is where a specific person on a specific row matches up from one graph to the other. Uh, yeah, the right, IDs versus right. all the exclusions. So, well, I I have to imagine right. that if it's in the one, if you were the condition and on the one and the other, you're going to find that they're probably the same people. But you know that that does say a lot about examiner performance. And it, the article takes some pretty good views on on calling that out a little bit. But yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. And now I'm going to say that something that. <laughs> You, you, you. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Sure. One of the accusations, of course, that everybody knows is that a lot of the FBI performed in the black box study, right? And my experience with FBI examiners and most of the federal examiners is they tend to be good examiners. They tend to be really good at their at their job when it comes to making calls one way or the other. Yep. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that there are some really good performers in this. And so here's the question I'm sort of rhetorically asking. Was Haber right that <laughs> this study is skewed a little bit towards good performance? Uh, what should I walk away from this and go, oh, thank God the FBI participated in this study and had a lot of participants? Or is that 30 to 50 percent range? Is that what's currently going on in the average agency? Well, let me ask you well, this. Let me, let me let me respond with a with a question back to you on, on this then. The study that you were involved with, with – where uh, you specifically looked for uh, mm. you know different source uh, image pairs that you know would tend to trip up examiners and and lead to errors. Yeah. What kind of breakdown for federal it agencies? It looks just like this. Uh, well, yeah. It was it, just. It looked- I didn't get a lot of federal participation in mine. So that's that's what I'm saying. So you, you, you didn't get a lot of federal participation. No. In fact, they had almost none. Uh, maybe one or two who did it on their own time and probably never told anyone they participated. But, uh, but then the results looking at – you know, separating out examiner from examiner looked similar to yes. this, didn't it? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. That's a great point. You're right. It does my, – my data do look like this. You've got some top performers. You've got some in the middle and you've got some at the bottom that are just – Scary. I mean, that's the only way I can say it. You know, and I know we haven't gotten to the eye tracking data yet, but I mean, the error rate in that one is even scarier when you look at just a couple of right. performers. Right. And and I think that kind of bears out just from a as a as an instructor, right? You know, I've gone yes. and taught at the FBI. I've taught at other uh, agencies across the country and other parts of the world, and performance is pretty much universal throughout there's the, I, I can't predict who's going to make the mistake uh, at the beginning of the class but i know that when i total up the percentages of you know, what percentage of people are going to make an error on this specific sample it, it it's it's almost always you know the exact same number or within yes. a pretty narrow range yes absolutely right and that's, I, that's I, totally I think my you've, experience yeah you've well. had the same experience so Yes, I, and I and I do actually. Before the, before we get there, I will tell them the percent. I mean, as we start to before I hear their answers, I'll tell them what other classes have as a prediction for percentages, and it tends to be exactly like you said, within you know plus or minus ten percentage points. Uh, the 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 only time that that starts to vary is if people in the class have kind of heard about the class or heard about 
you know, comparison samples in the class from other examiners hearing that they're challenging. Uh, and in those classes, there just tends to be more in the middle inconclusive group than, yeah. <laughs> than normal, right. uh, just because they're being extra cautious because they've heard of the, the class. So, mm. so I mean, while we're on this kind of subject of, of the examiners, just skipping ahead a little bit, there's a section on, on errors. Uh, mm-hmm. This is chapter seven or section seven uh, in the paper. And there is a little mention about how uh, s- some of these error rates can be attributed to a relatively small number of individuals that are participating. Uh, so you mentioned that examiner making two of the six erroneous identifications in the black box paper. But then looking at the eye tracking uh, results uh, that have come out more recently, of the 10 erroneous identifications in that paper, one examiner made six of them. And and the thing that really kind of caught me, I was like, whoa, six. I mean, that's crazy. But four of the six in in known-to-known comparisons. <laughs> yes. Like, I remember Austin mentioning that at the conference and not having an explanation for it, just saying, look, this is what we found. This is, right. this <laughs> is what, what the data are. Uh, so, again, absolutely going, wait, what? But I think what you're suggesting is that overall, there's question. You know, these studies help answer questions about examiner accuracy, uh, but they also raise a lot of questions. Like, how do we identify that guy from the group of examiners and get that specific person additional training uh, or additional checks, different additional verifications? or some sort of quality assurance process for that specific examiner, because it's obvious that something needs extra needs to be done for that person compared to everyone else uh, or most other people in the group. Yeah. And they make a suggestion for that. They say through real proficiency testing, through proficiency tests that are designed to identify exactly these issues that if you took proficiency tests where errors were allowed to help identify training needs, then you could begin to identify examiners like that. Uh, similarly, in the eye tracking one, three examiners made uh, about 10% of all erroneous exclusions. Uh, yeah. So it's the same thing for that side of the conclusion scale as well. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. And if any, I'll just throw some data out. They re, they reminded us of their error rates. They found that uh, the error rate, of course, for the original black box study was zero point one percent or thereabouts. The false positive error rate, and it was closer to one percent false positive error rate in the eye tracking study. Uh, and while none of those errors were reproduced in the black box study. That was the scary thing they noticed was that some of the false positives were in fact reproduced in the eye tracking study. Uh, For black box, the erroneous exclusion rate was 7.5%, which we've talked about that number many times, Uh, whereas in the eye tracking study, it was 15% false negative error rate. And 36% of those false negatives were reproduced by the same examiner in the eye tracking studies. One other thing they'd mentioned is how um, in creating the data set for the eye tracking study, uh, they looked back and they, they pulled some samples from previous studies, especially ones that had higher levels of examiner disagreement. So I, I'm wondering if that increase and the and then the um, 
uh, repeating of some of these errors uh, is uh, in some ways um, a factor of, I mean, again, stacking the deck with not a broadly representative sample of comparisons, but specifically concentrating together samples that would tend to create uh, differences in in, uh, conclusions. Yeah, and they they actually addressed that too. They said that they that's exactly what they did in the eye tracking study. They chose the ones from the, all the previous studies that tended to either be close non matches, close calls, gave examiners problems, or legitimately did create errors. All right. So um, the next section here, again, continuing on with with this same kind of topic, uh, and uh, Glenn, you just mentioned proficiency tests. Uh, is the suggestion of measuring examiner skill, but measuring it in in a number of different factors. So in four dimensions is what they describe. Uh, that being the true positive rate, the true negative rate, the false negative rate, and the overall conclusion rate. So right. a couple things for each one of those. So, all right, so the first is the true positive rate, which is uh, when you're given two uh, images that come from the same source, uh, you know, how often do you say ID? Uh, so, right. and, you s- and that's the sensitivity term. Uh, that's, yep. We might have heard people refer to it as sensitivity of the test. Uh, exactly. Uh, so if you, if you say a lot of inconclusives, then this would drop that – that number would get lower. Yes. Uh, the true negative rate, uh, again, when you're given two images that come from different sources, how often you can say exclusion. That's specificity. And again, if you say inconclusive a lot, that number will also drop lower. Uh, the false negative rate, which is pretty clear, you know, if when you're given uh, two prints that come from uh, the same source, how often you say exclusion, you get the answer actually wrong. They're not including true. Po- uh, they're not including false positive rate here because, uh, as we can, as we've discussed, that number is really low, and it's it's hard to measure. Uh, your false positive rate on somebody when they went through the whole test and never made a false positive uh, error. Uh, And then the overall conclusion rate. So how often can you say ID or exclusion uh, for each of those uh, relative categories um, as opposed to saying inconclusive or no value and you're not giving that result. So it's, it's taking all four of these uh, dimensions into an overall picture of the examiner. Yes. Now, one of the great things here is that you could, uh, different factors here can be more or less important. You know, you may want to view an examiner's, say, false negative rate as being more important than their uh, true positive rate or true true, uh, negative rate. Uh, in, In other words, as long as you don't make errors, then uh, um, we can accept a little bit lower true positive rate, true negative rate, uh, overall conclusion rate, because the the most important thing is just not getting something wrong. Um, But you you still need to balance that against providing some helpful information. You can't just completely sacrifice these other measurements just to have the... um, just to have a really good accuracy rate, which you could achieve by just saying inconclusive for everything. Right. Uh, so it's, it's really seeing these different dimensions and then 
after you get that kind of picture of a of a, an examiner from a proficiency test, then uh, different training, different quality assurance procedures might be used for different examiners to address different problems that that these different dimensions might expose. Yeah, that it's a hundred percent right there. I totally agree with this assessment. This is basically saying have proficiency tests that have actual meaning and not just in the level of difficulty, but you're looking at these other metrics of performance. And there has to be this balance between being able to offer decisions as opposed to all inconclusives. But inconclusives are an important part of that because, like you said, if you have too many inconclusives and your sensitivity and specificity will drop significantly. The reason I like this paragraph and what stood out to me, Eric, and I'm going to make a point you've made in other episodes, this is why inconclusives are important in the false positive and false negative sensitivity, specificity, statistical calculations. Because if you take the inconclusives out, as PCAS has suggested and we've talked about in other episodes, then you artificially inflate your specificity and sensitivity, they're going to look much higher. And if we're trying to truly measure someone's sensitivity, how often they say it's an identification when they are coming from the same source and their specificity, how often they say it's an exclusion when they're coming from different sources, if you don't keep the inconclusives in those measurements, they're going to look like fantastic examiners. If they only identified one latent print and excluded one latent print and got both of those right. And they only attempted two out of, let's say, 50 trials, they're going to look like amazing examiners. And that's the biggest argument for me and and the argument I've always made of if you're trying to measure these other things as a metric of performance, then you have to keep those inconclusives in there. And so this this is fundamentally why I have always disagreed with PCAST because those other statistics are things that I have measured in research, and those are things I do look at and think are important. You know, the, the thing that they left out, obviously, was the the false positive rate, and with, with well, good reason because they yeah because it's virtually impossible to measure uh, for somebody who has who got zero false positives. Uh, I, I think implicit in that is. Is if someone does make a false positive, well, then yes. that is measured. Um, yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. I think it's it's implied. Right. It, it's going to be measured, but don't expect to have any meaningful measurements when it's zero. All right. So the last section that they cover here is on uh, categorical answers. So most agencies, I mean, even around the world, most agencies tend to have this three conclusion scale: ID, inconclusive. Uh, and exclusion. The eye tracking study had examiners use one of seven different categories. Uh, exclusion, exclusion borderline, uh, inconclusive but leaning towards exclusion, middle of the road inconclusive, inconclusive leaning towards an ID, a borderline ID, and then ID. Uh, and they make a couple of good points here in that the three conclusion scale can... Uh, both overstate and understate the amount of disagreement p- between examiners. Uh, so if, say, one examiner is just leaning towards ID and another examiner thinks it's a borderline ID in a seven-conclusion scale, uh, 
you know, those would be really close to each other. Um, but in a three conclusion scale, it's just ID and inconclusive. Uh, so they could look like they're further apart. On the other side, uh, you could get one person uh, saying on a seven conclusion scale, inconclusive, leaning towards an ID, and the, uh, the another examiner saying inconclusive, leaning towards exclusion. And in a three conclusion scale, those all just both fall underneath inconclusive, so you don't see the difference that the, the examiners have. Yeah, and, and opposing weights of evidence. That's what's That's what's so problematic about the inconclusive is this is now just not well we differ a little bit in our, in our weight no you actually differ completely in weight of support of proposition one is proposing that the weight supports same source the other is proposing that the weight supports different sources that's a pretty big difference uh, so one of their recommendations here is to uh, revise our conclusion scale uh, so that the examiner's conclusions can be more precisely communicated uh, to our customers, the triers effect. That's the word we've been using in all of our episodes regarding the OSAC conclusion scale. That, that's the number one thing I keep telling people, having used it now for uh, now a year and a half maybe or so in my casework, is it's a more precise reporting system. That's the, the number one benefit I get from the OSAC conclusion scale is more precise language. So it was, it was actually really encouraging to see those exact same words in this paper. Well, and 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 I've been saying for years as well, uh, it it is no different um, than uh, being asked on the stand. All right, you said inconclusive. Can you describe why and how you reached that that uh, that conclusion? And you having to go through explain the similarities and or differences that you found. Uh, and, and in that description, you basically are describing one of these expanded scale zones. Really the difference being just whether you wrote it down ahead of time or you explain it on the stand. And with the added problem of, you know, how many attorneys can actually understand this enough to ask you that question? Not a whole lot. So let's just write it down ahead of time. Yeah, you shouldn't be giving new conclusions effectively on the stand. Uh, that's the kind of thing that should be transparent and reported prior to getting to the witness stand. So, um, and we've covered, boy, conclusion skills out the yin-yang um, for the past <laughs> uh, that we have. year plus. So we'll just leave that at that, and, uh, and you can reference numerous other episodes to get into more details about um, conclusion scales. Yeah, and but just when you do look or you, when you do listen to those episodes, just note how many times we talk about the precision of the language. That's the thing that really stood out to me when I saw that. I kind of jumped out of my chair and was like, "Yes, there we go." That's so nice that we've got this data group, you know, this well-respected research group, who kind of saw the same thing that we've been touting. We, uh, you know, I think I don't think it's been said enough. We are so lucky to have. A, a research group like this doing yeah, this kind of we work. Uh, yeah. I mean, that understands our field uh, and uh, has, you know, has the research and statistical, the mathematic, you know, background to do good research and uh, to, 
you know, give us all these tools to use in, in our work and in testimony and, and, and as, uh, as information to even help guide policy and standards. Yeah. And thank you, FBI, for, for paying for it. <laughs> Um, all right, so the, the paper concludes with some recommendations, uh, you know, practical near-term steps to, that, that we should consider based on what they found. We already mentioned the first one, revising the conclusion scale. Uh, the other ones, uh, improve proficiency testing, uh, like we said before, so that there is a, a better understanding of the capabilities of each examiner uh, and allowing for uh, new training that's targeted specifically for the needs of that examiner that you can't really do unless you have a, a more difficult test. Um, and I think that's, that's a fantastic way to phrase this, to, to solve this problem instead of just, oh, you got to get a hundred percent. No, no, no. Take a more complicated test uh, where lots of examiners from across the country are all taking it as well. And then seeing, all right, do you score with everyone else? Are you an outlier uh, in one of these areas? Okay, we need to get you training in this particular area. Or no, no, you're you know, kind of in the middle, and that's fine. But being in the middle means basically you didn't get everything right uh, because you know the the test is comprised of these kinds of samples that would lead to examiner disagreements. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I I would welcome that proficiency test. I mean, you know, especially something where I could get actual real feedback on performance. Yeah. And especially if I extended overextended a conclusion, and it kind of came back. Not not that I disagree with other examiners. You know, I I could be fine with that if if the majority went this way and I went either a more conservative or less conservative direction. But if I ended up making a false positive because I overextended myself, I would want to know that, especially if it was a moment of I could go either way. That would really resonate to know if I went the wrong way. And and next time I'm faced with that decision, probably wouldn't be – you know whatever direction I chose probably wouldn't go that route. And I imagine that would help happen for me probably a lot more on false negatives than I would want to know about. But you know, well, I, I would welcome that kind of testing environment because you'd be just like every other examiner that makes uh, false po- false negatives with you know with some frequency. I'm sure I do. Uh, I mean, every I mean that's I think that's the clearest that's result of of all of these studies. Everybody does. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Well, and I would definitely use case Davis in the proficiency <laughs> test too. <laughs> oh boy, that's a. That's a whole new. That's a whole bag of worms to get into. Whether that Indeed. should be, um, uh, <laughs> if that should be allowed, if that's part of regular casework, if that's how you compare, it uh, is a part of my regular casework now. <laughs> uh, how that's affecting examiners' ability to to search and mm-hmm. find it on their own? Do they need the ability to search and find it on their own anymore? Right. Uh, all right. So um, have have a. Basically, limit the effects of individual conclusions, meaning have some sort of blind verification uh, system set up when um, there's like a single conclusion in a case, like just one ID, um, or when you're dealing with uh, latents at that lower quality level or mid-range quality level, really, 
having blind verification for these samples that we've identified as having a higher risk of disagreement and hence a higher risk of error. Yeah, I, I like this one a lot because it, it kind of pointed out that, you know, given this study, that just because someone agreed with you doesn't necessarily mean that it was a valid decision or that somehow it, you know, it's scientifically supportable because they kind of ran through that you know through all throughout the entire study is that you know there are going to be people that agree with you right or wrong and if it's a single latent print conclusion just by luck of the draw you may have someone that agrees with you but just because they agreed with you if you had repeated that verification the next person might come along and go i don't think there's enough here to call this an identification I'm not saying it's not the person but I'm not saying the data support that this is kind of one of my biggest issues with this whole trend that has come up before with this verifiable scrutinize the data the data must support it and when they you know if another examiner agrees that the data support it, then that's makes it somehow scientific this is a really good example of just because one person agreed with you, that doesn't mean that everyone else is going to agree with you as well, uh, especially in those complex cases. And, it, and um, it, it, it raises some nice things to think about in those single latent print conclusion cases. Well, and it's also going to be different depending on which conclusion you reached. Um, mm -hmm. If you reached an ID, then odds are, are much higher that they, that's another person agreeing with you means that lots of other people would agree with you versus if you said exclusion and somebody else agrees with you, you know, then there's definitely a different risk factor there. Good point. But I, th I think that's why I like the recommendation on blind verification for right. that single ID so that it is an independent verification of it as opposed to they walk into it knowing what your conclusion was and have access to your data uh, and just to you know also be able to see the data and see that they match Give them the data after they have reached a similar conclusion as yours for them to review. Right. No, I think it's it's a um, an important element that every lab should have, where, where it, it's not a should we go blind or non blind as as the right. way we do things at our lab. Um, it should be that every lab has protocols in place where both options are available in different situations. Yes, agreed. So one thing that I, I don't know how to do this, right? Because I don't even think it's even possible with with this data set anymore. But what they what they describe here and in other places, especially in white box, is that there are some examiners that overperform, that are very effective and accurate at the same time, and there's also a group of examiners like we described here that underperform. Uh, that have higher error rates and simultaneously uh, are not effective in reaching conclusive conclusions. I, I think a, a next step from this would be uh, not just looking at the markups of these different groups of examiners, but actually talking to those examiners. Like, what do you do? How do you compare? What, like, what? What target group are you using? How are you searching for it? Do you reiterate and go back and and look at it in slightly different ways, like reconsider endings as bifurcations? Um, 
you know, do you stick with one target group? Like how many times do you go through that first one before you switch to a second target group? Like those kinds of questions that you can't really get from just the markup. It's more like a, 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 a study of how this person compares, but since everything's anonymized, you, you don't know who that person was. That was an right. overperformer. Right, right, right. Uh, so that's, that's something that I was rereading white box a, f- a couple months ago and that just those lines really struck me describing the group that overperformed and the group that underperformed and that just underlying question what do those people do like how do they compare and how can the how can we get everyone else to do it like they do it yeah this is something that i've struggled with and i have some thoughts in in latent prints but i'm going to table them for another time i'm just going to tell a quick drug chemistry story so when I was working as supervisor of the drug chemistry unit, I had underperformers and overperformers. I had one uh, drug chemist who continuously put out three times as many cases as every other drug chemist. And you know, I you know, I was very curious how she went about her work. I mean, I watched her work like a hawk. She cutting corners. How is she, how is she doing so well? She was just incredibly efficient. And you know, then I kind of watched some of the other ones. How are they so underperforming? So at one point, I had the, some of the underperformers spend time with the overperformer, exactly as you said, but in the drug chemistry setting. Never helped one bit because <laughs> what, for whatever reason – it's certain habits of one kind of worker and like her nature was efficiency and her nature was to kind of go at this speed and her nature was well like you know like uh servers in a restaurant you know the old adage you know never get one thing when you go back to the kitchen if you if you're making a trip back to the kitchen don't make it for one thing make it for multiple things so it was sort of how she worked and was just had this sort of speed and efficiency and then the other people i put with her just went i can't work like that i can't do that that just doesn't work i i can't do that i won't do that because if i try that i'm gonna make mistakes so that's the thing that eric that you know, if if you put those people with the high performers, are they actually going to get anything out of it? Are they going to? I just don't see it that way. I'll never be able to do that. That's not how I work. Is it an is it a nature nurture thing? Is it something that can be trained? And I don't know the answer to that. that. I, I know I tried it in one discipline and it didn't work. And I I I I hope I, I have no idea, but I I hope that habits that affect accuracy might. Be more learnable than habits that affect efficiency. Hmm. Even even if it makes you know, even if there's a, a downside where some examiners are less efficient in in, um, in learning those new things. But uh, but again, I think we're both saying that we don't know. Um, yeah, right. But uh, and and I'll say I'm doubtful. You're doubtful. <laughs> That's what I'm going to okay. say. I I I I totally agree with you. It seems like it should work. But I don't know how I don't know how it works because even with me and you, you know, we're on a little bit different spectrum when it comes to our interpretation of things. And I've spent time kind of sitting over your shoulder and vice versa, and I I still can't see things the way you see it. And you must look at the way I look at it and go, well, how is he? Why is he that way? Uh, you know, I I'd like to think yeah. that there is a way to learn from each other, but I just don't know if there is. And and I think the the greatest opportunity um, 
uh, for this learning, if there is an opportunity for this learning to occur and these, these, everyone to basically figure out what the, the best examiners are doing and try to learn from it, uh, is on the exclusion side of things. It's just because mm-hmm. it's such an unfamiliar yeah. language to most examiners, uh, that are, are just only focused on the ID side of things. That's a good point. Um, there's just so many examiners that are basically untrained on exclusions. Yeah. Uh, and that may be part of it. Maybe some examiners have had training on exclusions or have given that some, even if they're not formally trained, they've given it serious thought of how am I going to go about to logically exclude? And that has affected things. So if just anyway, that if, again, I, I, I appreciate your doubts, but I think if there is an opportunity, that's where it lies. All right. Uh, are we ready to close out here, Glenn? Oh, yes. Okay. All right. So let's first off with the anagram. So, Glenn, at the beginning of the episode, however many hours ago we began <laughs> this uh, conversation, <laughs> I said init- Hour and a half. initial chunks. Uh, so you were able to unscramble initial chunks? I was. Austin Hicklin. Very good. Uh, Although it, he has an R in his name, R. Austin Hicklin. I, I, I did leave off the uh, the R initial. Um, I'm not sure what where that would have gone. Uh, <laughs> uh, initial it, crunk? <laughs> trunks. Uh, sure. Shrunks. Um, Chunks. Yeah. Uh, you said that you got lucky. What 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 um, what did you see that made uh, that made it click? I'm just curious. Oh, yeah. Uh, when I put the C and the K together, I, I happen to randomly have the L close to it as well. And just because I know Austin well, it popped in my head. Oh, wait, this could be a name right around that same moment. But oh, good. I, when I got that I-C-K and then the L nearby, it just sort of everything came into focus. Uh, all right. So do we have any um, uh, upcoming classes that you want to mention? Well, I mean, eventually here, now that a vaccine is starting to roll out, <laughs> there's some hope that we might have a conference in 2021. Uh, I got the first email regarding the IAI conference and that they're starting to take uh, um, submissions for 2021, which will be in Nashville, Tennessee, fingers crossed. And, you know, we are starting to look at classes certainly in the summer and fall i know it's probably a little too far away for people to to really be thinking about and so much uncertainty but in the meantime please feel free to check out webinars that i'm teaching online through evolve forensics that's at www.evolveforensics.com you'll find plenty of webinars available uh, that i'm teaching or alice white as well well uh, for me i, I want to mention a class i did a couple weeks ago uh, and it's on the exclusion topic, um, which we we're just talking about here. And um, <clears throat> so it's same, same topic as I've taught on before, but uh, kind of revamped a bit uh, and offered through Idemia, where I currently work, uh, with a bit of more of an emphasis on uh, APHIS and how that can help with that decision. Uh, Fantastic. So it's a 40-hour it's a class, and uh, this the, when, I, when I gave it here a couple weeks ago, uh, it was – uh, it was offered online. Uh, so there's, there's currently an online version of it. Uh, the Once things again get cleared for back to in-person classes, it'll be offered in person as well. Uh, but if you 
um, are interested in that in either form, um, online in the relatively near future or in person down the road a bit, uh, you know, please uh, reach out to me and, uh, and I can you know, give you some more details. Next things, uh, if you want to reach out to us uh, on anything, Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com or Eric at RayForensics.com. Uh, our webpage, DoubleLoopPodcast.com. We've got all our episodes up there. We've got some merchandise uh, that is on there as well. Shout out to Michael White in Australia. Absolutely. From our website, you can also get to his website in the loop uh, with lots of other news stories related to forensics. Yeah, and, and it's great because he has all these news stories. We're hoping to be able to tap into those news stories and with his help and uh, superfan Becca and all of the other people that help us uh, with the podcast. We're kind of hoping to be able to be able to have like a newsletter that goes out uh, that will be continuing the Sandy Siegel figs. That's the fingerprint. What is the fingerprint identification group? Uh, interest group. Right? Interest, fingerprint interest group that was started years ago by Charlie Parker in Austin, Texas. So we're hoping to be able to send those newsletters out through the Double Loop podcast website uh, that will have all those uh, training events, news stories, article links, and you know updates, of course, from the Double Loop podcast and other fingerprint news sources. Yeah, so very much stay tuned on that for more information. We're working really closely with Sandy to to bring over uh, everything that she's done for years on this, working with Michael to set up kind of the technology, the underlying mechanics of it all, and then Becca to help uh, with, the, with the content uh, and being a main contact person for all that. So uh, lots of work going on, and uh, um, in the new year, that'll be you know, one of the new things that we unveil uh, with the with the podcast. But really, not podcast specific. I mean, we're we kind of do the podcast, so this is you know it's kind of how it's related. It's more just you know taking the baton from Charlie and Sandy and carrying it forward. The opinions expressed by the the, uh, the hosts here today are their own and not necessarily from anyone that they may work for. And with that, uh, thanks guys and uh, have a great Christmas and New Year's and we'll talk to you in the new year. Yeah, bye everybody. Have a great holiday season. Stay safe, stay healthy, try to stay sane. Take care. Take care.